One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com/acast code acast. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared creates collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. interview is with Marco Popovich. I had a blast with Marco on this interview and I hope he did too. He's a geopolitical strategist and yes by the end of this interview I think you're going to know what that means. You'll find out why he tells his daughter uh, when he's talking about what he does for a living, how he can predict the future and how he reads the news for a living. We get into a lot of issues here. We talk about politics, we talk about international issues, global issues, uh, what's going on in the news and why Wisconsin might actually be playing an important role for you uh, coming up in the very near future. We talk about fear and paradigm shifts and Noam Chomsky. We crammed a lot into this uh, interview and we had a great time doing it. So I do hope you're going to uh, listen in and I think you're going to learn a ton. I learned a heck of a lot and I'm looking forward to doing part two with Marco in the near future. So stay tuned for a very interesting interview here on Face to Face and check out davidpecklive.com for more interviews. And if you'd like to find out more about what I do uh, on the side, uh, you know, dig a little deeper on the website. And my book, Real Change is Incremental, is now available at a store near you. Uh, Marco Popovich, coming right up. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We are joined by another very special guest today. We're coming up close on our 200th interview, and I'm not sure where our guest today is going to sit, but uh, we're we're joined by Marco Popovich today. He's with BCA Research, and I am really looking forward to today's conversation. He's a geopolitical strategist. Marco, thank you for joining us today. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, really? Okay, so what the heck is a geopolitical strategist? Let's get right into that right away. You know, um... I get that question quite a bit. I bet you do. Yeah, and uh, if it's my daughter asking me what Daddy work, does for a living, I tell her something cool, such as uh, Daddy predicts the future. Nice. Um, okay. Yeah. But I don't do that, really. Um, the reality is I, I basically read the news hmm. for a living. Okay. okay. And, uh, and I try to tell uh, our clients in the financial industry whether the market is pricing various political risks correctly. And uh, because the media is so focused on, 
you know, getting um, getting its message sent out and paying the bills, if you will, a lot of times uh, they're overstating some risks. Like, uh, let's say last year, Greece leaving the euro area. You know, a lot, a lot of noise about that, but uh, that ended up being an overstated risk. And so my job is to kind of read the news and tell clients whether whether what's in the market is correctly priced or not. So are you, are you in a sense, Marco, policing journalists in a way? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say I'm policing because policing would require me to actually tell them when they're wrong or right, not. Right, right. And I don't want them to get better. Interesting. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the part of this that wouldn't work, that I wouldn't have a job, would be if the media organizations actually, you know, uh, reported things in a calm and calculated and uh, rational manner, then I wouldn't have a job because the market uh, would price events correctly. So, okay, so, t- so, so this has been an age-old frustration for me. My background academically is philosophy. Um, I've referred to myself sometimes as the financial village idiot in conversations from time to time. Um, what do you mean when you say the market? I mean, it's, I mean, the market is a group of people. It's a group of people that are reading the news just like you are, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to make decisions, trying to, you know, just get by, um, you know, who, who, who have homes and families and hobbies. And so I always find it so sort of, you know, that phrase just kind of, um, I don't know, it just doesn't mean a whole lot to me. And, and can, can you help me unpack that, humanize it in a way? Yeah, I mean, it's a shorthand. Yes, it's a good. Shorthand. Yeah. It, and and uh, it's a shorthand for, uh, as you say, for people, for humans, uh, but also institutions. Okay, yeah. And yep. What's, imp- what's important to understand about that group of individuals, institutions, is that they all have different time horizons. Mm. So you have, you know, sort of the uh, libertarian day trader sitting in a cottage right. uh, off-grid in Colorado. Like, that guy's trying to make a buck off of very, very short, volatile moves. But he's also a very, very small player. You have a sovereign wealth fund of a, of a state that's trying to preserve uh, wealth derived from commodity exports over the next 10 years. And what's great about the market is that these uh, short-term and long-term investors, they sort of meet in this marketplace and they make decisions. And the beautiful thing is that when somebody is selling because of a panic and they're a short-term trader, usually there's a long-term uh, investor out there that's going to say, ah, you know what, I like Brazil. Yeah, they were a mess, but I think over the next 10 years they'll be good. So they're going to buy that. And that's the market. Hmm. The market is a meeting place where people of different time horizons um, and different uh, views of the world meet. The problem is that uh, sometimes those time horizons get shrunk into the here and the now. Mm. And that's when the panics or mania right. come in. Right, and I think that's what I'm trying to get to when I say the market, I mean, and, when I, and why I sort of extended the question, because we, we're, we're just, you know, we're, we're making these decisions based on a level of emotional intelligence, based on a, you know, I want to get into some of the language you've used before, too, about, you know, you, know, you, you, you talk about human-level agent analysis and risk-neutral manners and, you know, these kinds of phrases that, you know, as a philosopher kind of make me crazy, right, from a language perspective, but I think there's a lot of value and a lot of insight there. So, you know, how do you filter out the noise when you sit there reading the newspaper? Is it based on, you know, dozens of years of experience and saying, well, this is how things have happened in the past, so therefore, and now, and now you really are predicting the future, um, or, or is there, you know, are there other tools that, you know, you bring to bear on it? Well, I think um, it's a little bit of everything, and I think mm. you definitely have to have some level of knowledge about the world. So my, 
my educational background is comparative politics, which is sort of the uh, black sheep in political science. If you want to be cool in political science, you do international relations. Right. You know, right. if you're very quantitative, right. if you're quantitative, you do like Canadian politics or American politics, a lot of data, a lot of number crunching. Sure. Uh, political philosophy also, if you want to get the girls, you know. Really, really, <laughs> political yeah. philosophers, nice. Absolutely. How come I don't believe you? <laughs> um, and, and then finally, comparative politics, where you kind of have to uh, have a – it's basically this idea that uh, no country is unique. Mm, nice. And that you can make, um, you can make inferences between cases and uh, that, that there's value in knowing a lot. And is that, and Marco, is that because people seem to behave in a particular way? Is that, I, is, are we now talking about the market again? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think so. I think there's a political market as well. There's mm. a market for everything, you know, and there's distortions in those markets. And you can, uh, you can say, look, in this type of an, a country with these type of types of institutions, authoritarian or so on, so on the leadership will act in a certain way. Uh, so, yeah, I think th- that's, that's one part of it. The other part of it, though, so having some sort of framework that mm-hmm. comes from academia, you know, mm-hmm. being grounded mm-hmm. in reality, I think sure. is important in order to make um, the kind of decisions I make. I think the other issue is just understanding that, you know, humans have a lot of agency, but um, behavioral psychology research shows that quite often we make decisions based on our context and on our situation, not really on our background ideology, um, or um, education level or anything like that. By agency, you mean free choice. Yeah, so we do have it, but it's We just don't use it very much. Well, no, I think it it just depends on what kind of a um, situation you're in. Right, Uh, right. And I think that makes, you know, that makes predicting policymakers, politicians, much uh, easier. Uh, It's much easier to to be able to, um, um, to predict individuals and policymakers, you know, what's Vladimir Putin going to do in Ukraine? It's much easier to do that if you believe that that person's decisions will be influenced by the constraints they face. Right. So, yes, so it is, um, you know, in order to make politics and geopolitics relevant in in the financial and market sense, you do have to predict the future. But uh, saying predict the future is really what I would say to my, you know, eight-year-old daughter. The reality is that it's having a view of what is likely to happen. So, I mean, is this, <clears throat> you know, we used to have a phrase when I worked in construction, and I'm sure I've used this on podcasts before, but the, the only thing more expensive than, than, than hiring a professional is hiring an amateur, right? Because you got to go back and do it two and three times to get it right. Is that why you do what you do as a, a political strategist? Because you're saying to people, I read the news in a different way than you do. I read it with a different lens. Yeah, and I, yes, and, I, and I'm, I'm, of course, being... Um, simple and, and, and kind of funny by saying reading the news, but it's a, it's a lot. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's, it's a great way to, to sort of explain it. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and I would agree with you. I mean, I think uh, one thing that I think uh, people who don't know finance or don't know the investment world um, might not understand is how professionalized it's become. But, mm-hmm. you know, construction industry is the same. Like, I mean, there's very few Renaissance people out there. No one's a Renaissance man or woman anymore. Hmm. We are we are all professionalized. When I was in academia doing my, you know, uh, graduate studies in political science, I realized just how obsessed we became in this discipline with semantics. Right. With these, uh, and really, a lot of this is, I think, it's uh, like labor protection. Right. You know, like no, you can't come and tell us what to do. You're a, you're an economist. Go over there. <laughs> you know. 
And so financial industry and I think investors have over-professionalized over the last 20 years, and we can discuss why that happened. Mm -hmm. I think it was related to the kind of world we lived in over the last 20, 30 years where there really wasn't that much in the political and geopolitical spheres that impacted the investment world. I mean, you know, to, to the credit of the investment community, they really didn't have to care. Right. They really didn't. And then suddenly, 2008 happens, some of the inequalities between uh, different groups and income levels surface to the, you know, to the surface. And suddenly, geopolitics starts becoming really messy as well, and you've got an epistemic community, if you will, a group right. of professionals who aren't really prepared to deal with these issues. So, yeah, I would say that uh, someone like myself, I, I professionally observe and think about politics and geopolitics, and I think a lot of uh, folks in the investment community appreciate that because they've become very, very good at finance. So, so, so many things I want to ask you, and I, and I would usually leave this question to, to sort of closer to the end of our, our conversation, but, you know, are, are you afraid <laughs> or are you hopeful? You know, you, you're, you're, you're in the middle of it every day, you know, politically right. and, and from a news perspective, you've got, you've got insights and you're reading stuff that most of us just don't have time to, to, to never mind to read, but to listen to, um, what's without pr predicting, I guess, at this point, but wh wh where do you sit? You know, do, you, do you sleep well at night, Marco? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I do think that we're, we're at the cusp of some paradigm shift huh. um, on both the geopolitical and political level. Okay. So top down, I, I do think that we live in a different world, and it's a world that's much more multipolar, and mm. that means that there's multiple countries that are today capable of pursuing their uh, foreign policy interests, their national interests. Whereas in the past, it was very tough for that to happen, and it was much a simpler world. You know, uh, Poland or Italy didn't have a foreign policy because Poland had to ring Moscow and get orders, and Italy had to ring Washington. Interesting. And, uh, you know, normative, moral way, that's really sad that countries had to obey somebody else. Sure. But from a perspective of stability, it was a very stable system. And so all you had to predict, all you had to think about was Moscow and Washington. Boom, that's it. You're done. Uh, today, we live in a messier world, you know, a world where Russia can intervene in Syria, uh, where Turkey can take offense to that, shoot down their fighter jets. Suddenly, you have these two actors who are uh, quite powerful, quite uh, capable of pursuing their interests independent of one another. And no, they don't quite care what Canada or U.S. Mm -hmm. or Japan or China think about it. And that introduces um, a lot of volatility, a lot of uncertainty into the system. It's much more difficult to produce uh, equilibrium in mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so from that perspective, I do think that we are going to have to become more comfortable with that. So I think that uh, from here until we become comfortable with the world we live in, I think there will be some risks. I, I love the metaphor of this, by the way. We're having to become more comfortable with uncertainty, frankly, is what you're saying. Yeah. And does that mean a more uh, developing a more conservative investor? Is that what that we're talking about? Well, from an investment, uh, from investors' point of view, they're, go uh, they're going to have to come to grips with the fact that the world that was sold to them by a lot of investment banks in nice glossy PDF packages of the future is in emerging markets, um, these countries are on track to grow X amount because they have a lot of young people coming to the labor force, everything is fine, just give us money and we'll sell you Malaysian corporate debt. You right, know? right, right. That, that, that world is gone. Mm. And so it will have real implications. Uh, both for investors here, like let's say in Canada, 
but it will also have implications for those countries because uh, they suddenly aren't looking like they're on the path to Wisconsin. And I, always, I use that as a, as sort of like a, a little analogy. I mean, you know, we were told in the 1990s and early 2000s that every single emerging market economy will eventually approximate Wisconsin <laughs> or Saskatchewan. Don't you they know, make a lot of cheese in Wisconsin? They do. But, think, you know, Wisconsin yeah. is such a pleasant place yes. to go. There's just nothing wrong with Wisconsin. It's just a, it's just a nice part of America. Like, it's pleasant. Uh, you know, they have some little disputes politically, but it's a really pleasant place where things work. And the reality is that that's not necessarily the case. And this whole modernization theory that really came out of political science, out of my discipline, comparative politics, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this idea that there's a slow, a slow and steady slog march that always will approximate every country towards, you know, Wisconsin. In, in, given long enough of time and uh, enough education and enough capital and all this stuff and good policy, boom. And the reality is that I think that's not the case. And I think investors are just going to have to be comfortable with that. And that means they're going to have to, when they start thinking about what to invest in, it's not just going to be about, is it cheap, you know, valuations? Right, right. Is there macroeconomic fundamentals? Is there growth? Is there um, momentum from a market technical perspective? It's also going to have to be, what are the politics like? Uh, are they building the institutions that underpin, um, you know, well-performing markets and, um, and solid political systems? Are they going to have to start reading a little more Noam Chomsky? Is that what you're saying? Well, I think everybody. You know, not just Noam Chomsky, but uh, uh, work in political science that deals with institutions. So, for example, Asim Moglu and Robinson's book, Why Nations Fail. Right. Great book. Uh, uh, I think a foundational book. Francis Fukuyama's book on democratic institutions. Uh, sure, Noam Chomsky as well. I mean, everybody. Um, it, I think investors are just going to have to become a little bit more what I think they were in the 19th mm. and early 20th century. Interesting. A little bit more of Renaissance people, you know thinking about all different things. I, I, I like the term consilience. Hmm. You know, that's a term I really like, and it, it, and, it, and it comes down to taking different perspectives, different approaches, and coming up with some unified system and theory to think about the world. Um, so, so tell me, did, did, did God invent economists to make astrologers look good? Is that, <laughs> is that what happened? Uh, yes. <laughs> back to your back to your comment to your you know to your daughter what i do is because here we are talking about agency we're talking about the future we're talking about geopolitical risk and problems noam chomsky you know because he's not exactly the cheeriest um you know forecaster right <laughs> when when he looks back at the history i don't know if you've seen his most recent doc but uh i think it's a requiem for an american dream he, right. he paints a pretty dark picture of where we're heading if we don't sort of smarten up, whatever well, that that's means. Well, that's right? the other paradigm shift. But that, that's the second paradigm shift that I think, you know, so one is the geopolitical sort of multipolarity, and there's no more leadership. You know, America isn't in charge. It's all about autonomy at that point, right? Right. And yeah. it comes, but there is also a political shift happening as well after 2008. And what's interesting to me is that so much focus has been on, like, Europe. You know, when is Europe going to fall apart? Right, is, right. You know, austerity, Germany... Uh, Podemos in Spain, Syriza in Greece, all this this back and forth. But the interesting and ironic thing is that if you look at some research um, in terms of middle class as percent of population, Europe is actually kind of okay, you know? Hmm. So um, economists always talk about, you know, labor flexibility. They talk about uh, di- dynamism, entrepreneurship, uh, ease of doing business. And these are all really important things. And, yes, I think... Um, 
like uh, labor uh, laws in France, probably should be loosened a little bit. Mm. You know, they, they probably need a little bit more, and primarily because young people can't get hired, you know, because there's like a baby boomer sitting there, probably has been unproductive for the last 30 years, but you can't fire them. So, you know, it's not like there is no case for why um, there shouldn't be a move away from sort of a, a very, very rigid regulation and, and, and heavy social welfare states. However, the reality is that in Europe, a lot of this political risk has been actually subdued by the fact that these countries have been able to protect their middle class. So I always tell this little tidbit, you know, France had uh, Internet and email before the U.S. did in mm. the 80s, Minitel. Mm. Uh, it was it, in, in the 90s. It was um, everywhere, but they didn't do anything with it because it was very much a state kind of driven thing. Right. Were, you know, it was just uh, inefficient and so on and so on. So France didn't invent Google. Too bad for them. But their right. middle class did grow from 60 to 70 percent of population between 1970 and 2016. Whereas the U.S., did invent Google, and it is a dynamic economy, and it is extremely competitive, and you can fire everyone whenever you want him. Boom, you're fired. Bye. You know, it's a very, very vicious system. It's dynamic. It's, uh, it's the kind of best place you want to invest if you're an investor. But the problem is that the middle class in the United States, as percent of population, has gone down from 60 mm. to 50 percent. And that's that other paradigm shift where I think that what you're seeing right now is that, um, you know, middle class has had it very tough. Yep. in a lot of places, and the political risks are in those countries where the middle class is really down and out. And ironically, again, because nobody saw this coming in 2010, uh, U.S. and the U.K. are probably doing worse on that than any other developed country. I mean, okay, so you, you, I, I saw you speak at an event in Toronto uh, recently and uh, loved your talk, by the way, and, 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 uh, and obviously enjoyed your talk. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't be uh, 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 doing this podcast today. But you did talk about somebody that I've got to bring up, Donald Trump. Yeah. I think you, you kind of made a, a, an aside reference, a, a comical reference. Um, you know, things have continued to, to increase. I keep waiting for uh, waking up and, and thinking somebody's going to say on The Tonight Show tonight or, or, or on The Trevor Noah Show, this was all a big joke, folks. <laughs> and it was a big setup just to make fun of the system. And it was really, you know, Sean Penn was behind it all <laughs> or, or, or something like that. And that doesn't seem to be happening, Marco. And it, is that kind of what we're seeing, a little bit of that kind of... Uh, grassroots reaction to some of these higher level, these ideological concerns that you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think that, um, I think Brexit, you know, the UK's referendum on EU membership, um, I think the successes of Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, um, a lot of the anti-establishment mm -hmm. movements um, in Europe as well, but even in the U.K., for example, the leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, is more left-wing than you've, you've seen um, really in the Labour Party since the 1970s. It's, uh, it's a reaction to the fact that the globalized world, in a lot of countries, globalization has produced winners and losers. Mm -hmm. And that's normal, mm -hmm. and it's always the case. Mm -hmm. The problem is that the winners have been few, and the losers have been plenty. Mm -hmm. Again, especially mm -hmm. in the sort of um, less fair economic systems that the U.S. and the U.K. have. And I think so, so that's, that's to me a puzzle. It's a puzzle that um, the U.S. and the U.K., the two economies that nobody in 2010, 2011 would have thought that they'd be yeah. at the precipice of, like, populism, uh, they are. Whereas, you know, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, they're kind of like, meh, what's happening there is kind of what you would have expected. And I, and I find that very interesting. 
I find that interesting. And so, yeah, I do think that you have this paradigm shift ideologically. And I think that what you will see over the next five, ten years is that the U.S. and the U.K. will slowly move, I think, to the left hmm. on economic matters, hmm. on economic policy. And I think Trump, by the way, is misunderstood in this. Uh, obviously, his rhetoric is very right-wing when it comes to immigration or when it comes to social issues. Um, but on policy, I think he's actually much more left-wing than anyone from the Republican Party in 60 years. And uh, even on, with Hillary Clinton, I think he's tried to move to the left with uh, you know, accepting that minimum wages have to go up, uh, that income taxes have to go up on upper-income uh, individuals, things like that, that he has said since winning the nomination. So is he not the lunatic that so many people think that he is? In well, your mind? I, you know, I think lunatic is a strong word. Yeah, it is. I'm, you know, small yeah. L, small L. <laughs> well, I th- I, what I would say is that um, that he is very, very smart when it comes to marketing and branding. Sure, of course Obviously, he is. Obviously, we yeah. know that. And so yeah. I think what he figured out... Well, and, and Marco, isn't it really, too, about what he represents? Right. That, that seems to... It, and that's frankly what frightens me a little bit more on one hand and yet i find somehow oddly encouraging on another because there's there's a connection almost to your your comment about renaissance you know that we've got there's got to be more autonomy there's we can't be all top down and so on well i think i think what uh you're right i mean uh i think i think that it's very difficult to know what he will do if he became a president of the United States. Mm. We do know, however, that the president does have a lot of power. You know, there's a, this view out there that just checks and balances. Well, you know, not really. Not really. I mean, the executive power of the president is considerable. Executive orders of the U.S. president are rarely struck down by Supreme Court decisions. Right. Uh, and they do have the ability to appropriate funding, not in terms of total value, but they can shift appropriation in the direction they want which is an important issue. I mean, that's ultimately uh, a, a big issue. So, so, yeah, it's not just foreign policy. We don't know what kind of policy he will lead. But what I do think that he uh, – so, so, in other words, is he a lunatic? We'll see. You know, but <laughs> I don't know. But what I do know is yeah. that what he very, very – your, your, your crystal ball's a little murky on that one, right? Uh, a little murky. And, uh, <laughs> and you know what? A lot of people say, well, he'll bring advisors who yes. will kind yes. of rein him in. And I just don't believe that. Interesting. Okay. No, I don't. I think that he, you can already see that he's being advised by some pretty, pretty shaky individuals. Mm. And what I mean by that is some of the reactions that he has had are just stupid. Well, like, th- yeah. And I don't mean that ideologically. I mean, if I was Donald Trump's advisor and I wanted him to win, I would have said, look, it's easy now. It's, it, it's, it's not you in cruise control. Mm-hmm. You won the nomination. Just move to the center. Interesting. Start yep. making fun yep. of the establishment. Dial it, dial it back a dial little bit. Dial it back. Yep. I mean, you know, like, what do you have to lose? Yeah. It's not like the, the Republicans will vote for Hillary, you know, and he hasn't done that. So that tells me that the, the people he has surrounded himself actually are, are very poor strategists. And if he takes them with him to the White House, um, they will be very poor policy uh, also aides as well. Now, what he has done well, to go back to the sort of the move to the left, is I think he has realized that the American median voter, uh, sort of the voter that um, every policymaker, every politician wants to capture, gets closer to, I think he figured out that they're more to the left. Mm. And you've noticed mm-hmm. in his campaigns and his uh, primary uh, debates with the GOP peers, what he did was he, you know, he basically didn't utter any single tenet of the Tea Party once. Right. He didn't talk about balancing budgets. He didn't talk about austerity. He didn't talk about this. He said, look, universal health care, love it. Right. You know, fiscal spending, awesome. Entitlements, give me more. 
And I think he really shocked the rest of the GOP establishment who were saying, whoa, 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 those are, you know, you can't spend more money. Right. You need to cut. And he said, no, people don't want cuts. And I think, so that's where I think his genius comes in. That he, he realized something that Hillary Clinton and his opponents in the Republican Party didn't realize, which is that the median voter in America has moved to the left. And why wouldn't they when, again, 50% of the population today is middle class, just 50%. I think it's a nice segue into, I, I'm pretty sure at your talk, you talked about the whole notion of the fraying of American hegemony. Can you unpack that a little bit in relation to, you know, kind of what, what we've been talking about, not only with related to Trump and the U.S. and the U.K. and so on? What, what, what does that actually mean? Mm. And, and what are some of the implications? Is this more about the, the you know, that, 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 uh, that global autonomy that you were talking about? Is that the connection? Yes. Or part is. of it, I suppose? Yeah, well, it, it, it's, it's directly related to it. You know, political scientists, they look at the international community and they say it's in an anarchy. And um, there's a huge debate, of course, about that between different um, theories. And I, I tend to agree with that. There is no international government. There's some rules and norms, but they're mm -hmm. broken all the time. And yes. So, you know, given that it's an anarchic system, um, the distribution of power between states varies that anarchy. So um, think of a schoolyard. If you have one bully yep. beating everyone up, it's maybe a reprehensible, repulsive, and normatively, um, you know, a negative outcome. But the reality is that that's a very peaceful, very sure. peaceful. Sure. Uh, you know, people get beat up if they kind of uh, speak out of turn. If you have two bullies, the yard may be split into two halves. But again, it's uh, it's a stable system because nobody is really challenging the two bullies. Right. Um, and the least stable system. <coughs> is a multipolar one, where you have a bunch of bullies just running around and trying to capture as much territory as they can. Right. We know this. This is, this is empirical fact. I mean, I'm not giving, like, a philosophical view. I mean, we know this from game theory, so you can model this mathematically. <coughs> what happens when you introduce more veto players in a, in a game-theoretical um, sort of game? Do you, do you play a lot of Risk, Marco? <laughs> I did when I was a kid. You can well, actually, you know what? Risk can be a little boring. Civ yes. three, though, when I was a kid. Oh man, Civ, Civ civilizations that very much captures this. Fun. You know? yep. the, the game slows down when there's only two players. When there's right. a lot, yeah. it's crazy. It's, it's, yeah. You're trying to get that dude's gold mine or whatever the hell it is. I forgot. You know. So the reality is that that's the world we're living in today. We also know that both from game theory, but also from empirics. We know historically that whenever the world was multipolar and we can measure the power of different states, it was a messy system. And so that's where the fraying of American hegemony comes in. So a lot of your listeners may be like, yes, American hegemony is fraying. I've been waiting for that. You know? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the immediate reaction. It's about, it's about time. It's about time. Yeah. Those yeah. Yankees are going to be cut down. <laughs> yeah, the peg. that's right. You know, like uh, the problem, though, the problem is that it's not like it's American hegemony, American power that's a good any power is a good in that it reduces, one, uncertainty, two, it hmm. provides global public goods. Very important uh, concept. Uh, empires and these hegemons, they provide global public goods that definitely serve them primarily, but they also serve everyone else because they resolve the global collective action dilemma. So who's going to intervene in West Africa to deal with right. uh, outbreak of Ebola, for example? You know, it's not going to be Médecins Sans Frontières, although they definitely did an incredible job in their, their heroes. Sure, yeah, absolutely. But they are not going to cure the disease. It's so, going to have to be somebody that sends an aircraft carrier, that sends 
troops, that sends mobile hospitals, that cleans that kind of a mess up. And the reality is that in today's world, it took the U.S. a lot longer than it would have in the past to do something like that um, because of, you know, material fraying of this uh, empire hegemony. Now, my point always is it's not American hegemony that's a good. It's any. It it's can any. be an alien life force. And, and, and is, is that what makes it... Um allows you and I and others to sleep well at night in some sort of implicit way that we know going to bed tonight that if something happens, oh, that power will take care of it, whoever they happen to be. I mean, is is there a sense there, do you think? I think, I think, uh, absolutely. I mean, it's just, it's an empirical fact that when you have hegemony, when there is somebody in charge, uh, the world doesn't oscillate. There's not as much volatility. The ups Mm. and the downs are going to be uh, less dramatic. Now, you may not sleep well at night because you happen to be Saddam Hussein's, like, you know, right-hand man. Right. And America has picked you to be the poster boy for the problem. So it's not, again, and, and that, that may be unjust, you could argue. So again, this isn't a normative and moral discussion. This is really a, like a technical discussion. Sure, sure. Does the world have more risks, more things blowing up and does it take longer for them to be dealt with in a multipolar or a unipolar world? And we know the multipolarity is very, um, very complicated situation. So if you're an investor or if you're an aid organization, you suddenly have to deal with a lot more actors, and uh, that complicates your life. So tell me, tell me a little bit more about what you do personally, Marco. I, I mean, I, I'm so loving this conversation. I, I, I feel like uh, you, I need to come to one of your classes. That's what I'm feeling like right now, and then just sit and take notes. But how, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical of this notion of, um, hmm, you know, disinterested analysis. But I, I, I seem to remember you using a phrase, um, getting away from, or using a risk-neutral approach. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an implication there that, that, you know, that anyone can look at the news or, or what's going on in the world geopolitically and not bring some sort of bias to bear or, you know, framework or, uh, you know, as, you know, Chomsky would say, maybe an ideological sort of uh, a leaning or implication. How do you shy away from that? How do you say to your clients that this is what we can offer you? You know, uh, this is going to sound very crass. <laughs> and, and I, I think that your listeners... Well, it's about time, you know. <laughs> but your listeners may not like the answer. Okay. But the reality is this. Uh, finance, which obviously is, I think, right now, uh, I think maybe like Ebola and then finance, that's like the ranking in the, in the sort of like popularity, <laughs> global popularity uh, contest, if you will. It, it has a very bad uh, association to mm-hmm. it. Everyone's angry at the bankers and Wall Street and so yeah, on. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, uh, but I think one, one thing about finance that makes it easier for you to be non-ideological is that it's ultimately about money. Right. Okay? So it's very simple. When I make a call on what's going to happen when Poland has an election and new government comes in, um, are they going to do A, B, C, and D? My call will be right or wrong based on whether my uh, predictions influence the market the way I said they would. And so if they are right, my clients are happy. If they are wrong because I was ideologically opposed to the incoming government or whatever, uh, and they, they ended up being wrong, then I'm not going to have any more business. Right. So yes. that's why yes. I think... You know, so it, 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 in another sense, in a sense, then, then this pursuit of profit gives you this abil- uh, um, ability to be, to be completely black, sort of black and white. 
Well, I think that it's very difficult to uh, net out your personal biases. Right, right. Obviously, and uh, I meditate on that, literally. That's, that's part of your job when, when, when I hire people. Okay, if you're going to tell me that you're a, a closet Buddhist now, I might have some issues with that. <laughs> no, well, I, I, mean, I'm, I, I mean in general. <laughs> right. And when I hire people to work with me, uh, when we build teams, yeah. this, is, you know, this is something that you need to be aware of your biases yeah. and you need to Of course, them. yeah. You know, and, and, and overcoming them takes a lot of discipline and honesty. And, uh, and also you need to probably kind of disassociate yourself. Well, I mean, I think an analogy, you know, I, I've got a background uh, in magic. I do a lot of sleight of hand magic, cards, coins, this kind of thing. There's a thing with gambling, you know, you, 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 there's a tell, you know. Mm -hmm. So a gambler will have a tell or a magician will have a tell. And when they do a sleight, they have a little tick or they smile. Or, I mean, you don't have that freedom. You have to, you have to give me the real goods. Right. Well, the good example of that is, is actually is gambling, which is with finance and gambling. There's obviously uh, very there's similarities, and not just in a negative way, also in a positive way. You you constantly have to update your probabilities, mm. and in gambling, of course, uh, the biggest mark of a great gambler in poker, for example, is not being committed to the pot. Mm. You know, and that's that's very similar to not being biased. I mean, you have to at some point just kind of step away and say, I'm you know like whatever it is that I think is right or wrong, this is what I think will happen. And so one of the things I tell my clients, because a lot of them ask me what should happen. Yes, right. You know? right. So like I had this, uh, you know, I was talking about this conversation about middle class declining, being at 50% of population and um, how that is going to create obvious risks. I mean, to me, it's obvious. To many people, it isn't. Yeah, sure. Yep. Uh, and then uh, I remember after this one talk, uh, I went to get a cup of coffee, you know, I gave my talk and I was tired. I was going to get a cup of coffee. And this, this gentleman who's uh, in charge of a very, very large you know, Canadian pension fund runs after me. He's like, so how do we fix it? You know, what do we do? And I tell him, honestly, that's where my analysis kind of ends. Sorry. Right, right. You know, like, you're going to have to vote for people who kind of figure that one out, and hopefully, you know, they're good. But uh, what should happen, the should is a four-letter word for me, and I just, I don't mm, deal with that. Nice. And that allows me to stick to what will happen. And uh, what will happen, I will be either right or wrong, because my clients will either be happy, or they'll be, you know, or they'll be very sad, and then they won't hire me ever again. So someday, will you work for like a major spy agency? <laughs> uh, you know, spy agencies are different because there is no profit involved. <laughs> right. I, I, I don't want to sound it's again. True. No, it's true. You you have you have the the what I love about from what I get anyway. What you're doing is you you have this ability to say, no, guys, this is the way it is. This is the way I I really see it. I've I've put the I've put the glasses down, and I'm I'm telling you like it is, and the way I feel it's gonna you know love me or hate me, but there you go. Right? And, and there's there's got to be some freedom in that. Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah. what it is is, you know, like uh, intelligence op uh, organizations uh, are anchored to the interest of a state. You have to understand yes. that. They're yes. not anchored to, to the financial interests of clients. Sure. There's no portfolio you're trying to, like, um, enlarge through returns. So uh, in that way, I don't know if intelligence agencies are ne necessarily objective. A lot of times those interests obviously align with national interests of a country and success is measured differently. My success is simple. And I, again, I don't want to be crass like capitalist, but my forecast is either right and then my clients, you know, see that in their returns or it's wrong. And then they don't call me again. And then they assume I was biased. Or, right, right. Oh, Marcos made five wrong calls in a row. He clearly has a blind spot and he right. clearly is biased and ideological or whatever. And so, you know, I think that's the great thing about research agency like my firm, BCA, which we're in Montreal. We've been in Montreal since 1949, so uh, Canadian-based always has been. And 
we just we we kind of you know to put it bluntly we we focus on on the reality and we try to explain that reality and what the implications will be for the market and the great thing about the market is that there is no there is no normative or moral right or wrong it just is and it's, it's a way to it's it's a way to articulate what's happening in the world through financial assets. So we've got to wrap it up in a couple of minutes here, but you know, you you brought up the notion of moral, the moral question, and I wanted to ask you about that. What what about this notion? Uh, and certainly, this is an area that I that I like to talk about. This the, the the triple bottom line. So the markets are driven by, you know, this bottom line. It's all about profits. You know, it's an extension of Friedman's thesis in the seventies and so on. Um, are markets becoming more moral in a sense, or uh, are they becoming more? Hmm, sensitive to others is that a fair way to put it like you know this whole idea of impact investing you know sustainability the triple you know the triple bottom line people planet prosperity is that are you seeing that playing into these kinds of uh the the movement of the markets uh, going into the future absolutely and Mm -hmm. i'll I'll give you a very very example simple crass stupid example (laughs) does it include donald trump because uh, it's actually dumber oh okay okay and and this is and this is uh this is what i do for a living literally I, i i make very very simple points in the you know in the 18th and 19th century in my research when i talk about assets being uh, implicated by politics Mm. one of the asset classes would be human beings Mm. correct Mm -hmm. what's going to happen to the price of a commodity called slaves true Mm -hmm. right that would have been one of the asset classes that investors would have wanted to know what's going to happen sadly yep yep. yeah that's that's one of the and that's is that the case anymore of course there is still the tragedy of human slavery which has not been defeated and there are still people who are smuggled which is terrible and my wife worked on that issue actually when we lived in the u.s Hmm. there's a lot of human trafficking going there really there really is the the numbers are astounding it is um but it's worse actually marco worse than in wilberforce's day if you can believe that well, I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's absolutely the case. Uh, but the good thing is, at least, uh, the positive thing is that there are now norms and uh, legal protections that yes. you cannot do this on an open auction. There's no, like, you know, there's no auctions of human slaves in downtown Philadelphia or in London. Right, right, right. right. And I think that's, that shows you that uh, the market is merely the manifestation of uh, not just different supply and demand forces, but supply and demand forces that are created by governments and human societies and norms and values and morals. And so if one day we decide that a single unit of carbon released into the environment has a cost, right, and we put, uh, when we associate a cost to it, uh, then that will become part of um, markets calculus. And so I am very hopeful in that way that I am seeing more and more uh, investors asking questions about, you know, um, various social issues and how to basically like socially proof their portfolios, if you will, to make sure that what they are investing is uh, does conform to, you know, their, their norms and mm-hmm. values. And so I, I definitely think that's the case because it happened before. That's right. basically my point. I mean, if, you know, if we could outlaw slavery, if countries could outlaw slavery, we can also outlaw a lot of other things that we decide at one point that we are um, that we feel should 
be outlawed. I was interviewing a guy yesterday, a journalist who has spent time with the Islamic State, actually one of the only Western journalists to get to get in with him for 10 days, and he's written a book about it. And I said, you know, Jürgen, did I, did I just sense a little bit of hope there in your voice as he was sort of unpacking this story? And there was this long pause. We were inter- I was interviewing him over Skype, and he said, you always have to have hope. <laughs> And Absolutely. it was just, you know, it was a really, it was a, a favorite moment of mine in many, many different interviews that I've done over the past few years. And uh, uh, it sounds like there are reasons to be hopeful and to continue to, you know, drop the pebbles in the pond, as it were. Um, big question. When are you moving to Wisconsin? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm quite happy here in Montreal. <laughs> okay. I, I think uh, I actually love the weather here. And you and I, love the weather. Yeah, yeah, I do. I really do. <laughs> And it's funny because we moved up here from Texas where we were oh, okay. seven years. Yeah. And before that, we were in British Columbia. Right. And uh, I think I like uh, Quebec weather better than either British Columbia or Texas. Is that right? I lived yeah. in Montreal for two years, and it was even as a kid, I thought it was a bit too much snow. <laughs> you know what? It's great. You just have to be really, really into snowy activities. Right. That's uh, but, right. You know, one thing. One thing. I mean, speaking seriously about like Canada and Canadians' economy, and and uh, being hopeful about let's say Canada, mm-hmm. I think uh, I'm very hopeful about being here in Montreal. And, and I wasn't necessarily when we moved here, there was a lot of sort of uh, back and forth. But I think that one great thing that Montreal has, and I've lived in Vancouver and I'm in Toronto every month, so I know how vibrant those cities are. I know how incredible uh, Toronto has become over the last 10 years. It's a great place. It's a metro- metropolis. Uh, but I do think that Montreal has an advantage over both. And I say that as a foreigner, you know, here. And it's that it's cheap. And young people can come here, and young people who are not going to work on Bay Street for you know $250,000, but they are still very, very good at what they do. Mm. They might be artists, and there might be uh, you know uh, tech coders. They might um, they might be a little bit avant-garde, and that's what a city and a country needs in order to have creativity. Not everyone right. can be a doctor, a lawyer, right. a real right. estate agent, or a banker. Ren- Renaissance men and women. Exactly. Yeah. And that's happening here in this city. And uh, I think that cool. what's very sad about the place that I call home, Vancouver, is that it's not necessarily happening there anymore mm. because um, the cost of living is just astronomical. Thanks for your time today, Marco. How can people get a hold of you? BCAResearch.com is the website. Yeah. Um, and uh, is that the best way to track you down? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, we, I will be starting a podcast of my own. So Excellent. To collaborate on that. Oh, I'd love to do that. That's 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 good. That's it's going to sort of talk about these issues in a less of a, you know, finance investment focused way. Um, it's still going to look at the world um, from a from my perspective, um, but it's uh, it's going to stop short of sort of get geeking out about bond prices. <laughs> right. Right. So, well, maybe there. Maybe that's the title of it. My perspective. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Yeah. Uh, Marco Popic, he's the um, uh, chief strategist of BCA's Geopolitical Strategy Service. Find him online at bcaresearch.com. Marco, thanks a lot for your time today, your candor, your sense of humor. Really appreciate it. Hey, John. Thank you so much. (laughs) 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.